Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Friends, welcome again to Engage 360. We're coming to you from Denver Seminary. My name is Don Payne, your host. And this week, again, we've got a, a really interesting guest, but let me set our conversation up this way. In his book, How the Irish Saved Civilization, author Thomas Cahill argues that monks in the first millennium actually saved civilization, at least Western civilization as we know it, by protecting and preserving manuscripts, uh, including biblical manuscripts, uh, manuscripts that have been foundational for modern Western culture. And that speaks to the power of the written word, uh, that the tentacles of that influence are really hard to measure, I think. So whether you consider yourself a reader uh, or a casual reader or an avid reader, we are all influenced far more than we know by the written word. And so we are honored and privileged in this episode to visit with someone who knows that very deeply because she is an accomplished author and teacher of writing, uh, Patricia Raybon. Patricia, welcome. I'm delighted to be here with you today at Denver Seminary. It's been a while, and yeah. I'm happy to be here. Uh, we're so glad you're here. But uh, in addition to her many other accomplishments, uh, Patricia served for a while on the Denver Seminary Board of Trustees, and we're really grateful for what you invested in our community uh, during that season. Thank you for that. Thank you. Uh, Patricia actually retired as Associate Professor of Journalism uh, from the University of Colorado. Uh, and her work, her essays, and many, many works have been published in the New York Times Magazine, in Newsweek, and USA Today, the Chicago Tribune, and a number of other places. Uh, they have been featured in National Public Radio's Weekend Edition. Um, in addition to her many essays, she is also the author of a number of books, such as I Told the Mountain to Move, Learning to Pray So Things Change, my First White Friend, Confessions on Race, Love, and Forgiveness, Undivided, A Muslim Daughter, Her Christian Mother, and Their Path to Peace, and most recently, a mystery novel entitled All That Is Secret, uh, which is kind of a new direction for you, I think, right? Fiction, totally new for me. And um, it's... Uh Exciting for me to um, even say that, Don, to even um, place myself in that bucket and call myself a novelist. Uh -huh. I, I'm surprised about that. So tell us a little bit, Patricia, about that, that shift. What, uh, after all that you've written, what prompted you to move in that direction? Two things. I love story. I love fiction. And we had a pandemic. And all of us learned things during that time, that pandemic year of 2020 in particular. And um, what I learned is that there was no reason to be afraid to try something new. So I, uh, that summer, I was with my husband at home, isolated, um, vaccinated, <laughs> all those things. And I said to him, what would you think if I tried to finish a mystery that I had started working on several years ago, 
But during the pandemic, it seemed like if I was going to try something new, this would be the moment to do it. So this wasn't actually brand new. It had roots back, you said you'd worked on it some time ago, and you kind of returned to that? I love the genre. And um, in particular, I love clergy mysteries. Okay. And so in addition to enjoying them, I had started buying and reading books on how to write fiction um, many years because I, uh, as, a, as a professional writer and a teacher of writer, I love all fo- uh, writing formats. And um, fiction was something that I thought at some point I wanted to try. I wasn't sure that I could do it, but I wanted to uh, see if I tried it, what would come of it. Not much, so I put it on a shelf. But there was something, done something about that pandemic summer that said that the big threat was this deadly virus. Mm-hmm. And that there, I had no excuse not to try to do something that might frighten me. But um, my invitation was to lean into it and see what happened. I really admire your courage and your faith exhibited in that. Because it, it was... Uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, what I'm hearing in your description is that this is far more than just that that kind of broad-based sentiment is that you hear so often is, I want to write a novel. Right. You know, I want to write, write the world's greatest novel. Or the, <laughs> You hear that a lot. Um, but this was really an exercise of faith and courage for you in many ways, right? There's um, always, in any kind of published writing, the... Um, possibility that somebody's going to criticize it and won't like it. But, and that's certainly true in the world of fiction. But I um, gave that fear to God Mm. and sat down at my keyboard and got to work. And I remember telling my husband, Dan, um, nothing may come of this. But what matters more is that I'm giving it a try. Hmm. And um, sure enough, I, I have an agent, and he sold it quickly to a Tyndale House Fiction, their fiction division. Yeah. And um, the book was released the fall of uh, 2021. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, and as we, as we go along today, I want to talk a little bit about that book, your, your mystery novel. Uh, as well as writing in general, uh, while you were making your your comments um, about that process, I was kind of smiling inside when you mentioned that the the great risk is someone's going to read it and and criticize it. And I'm thinking from the kind of writing, limited as it has been, for me, the great risk is that somebody will even read it at all, <laughs> other, other than my parents and friends. And when my friends read my stuff, it's just all I get from them is, oh, way too many footnotes. Why? Well, what's with all those footnotes? <laughs> always critics. Yeah, always always <laughs> critics if they read it at all, right? Yes. Um, wow, where do, we, where do we start? Why, why do you write? Why, why, why have you given yourself and your career to writing? I'm sure it has to do with my background. Some of your listeners may know that um, I am a woman of color. 
I grew up under Jim Crow segregation before the Civil Rights Act was passed, before the Voting Rights Act, before the Fair Housing Act. Um, and um, remember in first-person ways the insult of that experience. And it just um, required of me to think about what was happening. What was it about me and um, how people defined me that alarmed them so much and required them to make laws that constrained where my family could go and live and um, have our being. And, um, and so the place where I found a way to examine all of that was with um, words. I, I often think, Don, that if that had not been my experience, would I have landed in some other field, some mm. other career? Mm. I don't know, but I'm grateful for it because it's given me a, a way to think on paper about what I experienced and uh, and not just that, but to also then think about how it connects to my faith. So that's that's my that's the intersection for me in terms of my writing, faith and race. Yeah, I want, want to probe a little more into that. Um, before we do, I just want to thank you for how you chronicled that in your book, My First White Friend, mm-hmm. which I read some years ago um, and was very moved by that. Uh, you you grew up in the Denver suburb of North Glen, right? Yes. Yeah, and I, I latched onto that because I, when I was a teenager, lived uh, in the neighboring suburb of Thornton. I went to high school at uh, Thor- in Thornton. Thornton High School? Oh, yes. did you really? Yes. Okay. Merritt Hutton was the name at that time. Yes, I remember <laughs> that. I remember that. Yes. Um, that was a, just a, 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 an inviting story, um, a gripping, gripping story. Well, um, it, it's a, a narrative. The race narrative is one that um, some people, for some reason, don't want others to um, think about and wrestle over, mm-hmm. over. But it is the American narrative. And, yeah, it is. It and is. so um, I um, found permission in my faith and um, in the storytelling um, nature of the Bible to sit down and write my own stories as they related to, um, you know, those areas, faith mm-hmm. and race. And so that's where where I have labored all these years mm-hmm. and um, have um, been grateful to find answers and um, and encouragement, but also to uh, feel comfortable not always um, understanding everything that's happening. I was thinking about it today coming over here. This has been uh, a, uh, we've been in a hard season this past couple of years. And uh, politically and socially, it's not clear where we're going to go, where we're gonna land. But um, the promise of the story is that at some point there will be in that journey a resolution and some answers. And um, I, I, love, I, uh, I was telling somebody the other night, writing has never t- 
felt to me like work. Hmm. Not, you know, I worked for a dozen years at the Denver Post as a, um, a news reporter. I worked at the old Scripps Howard newspaper as a reporter. I taught journalism for 15 years up at the University of Colorado at Boulder. And none of it has really ever felt like work. It's something I feel privileged to do. You, you remind me in saying that of an experience I had many years ago when I was in undergrad. I took a course in creative writing and uh, read a little book called Sweet Agony by Gene Olson. Mm-hmm. And one of the few things I remember <laughs> is a comment he made in the book that he, uh, as a writer, did not enjoy writing. He said he enjoyed having written. You probably heard that. <laughs> yes. It <laughs> sounds like that's not as true for you. You really enjoy the process of writing? I love the process. And um, probably because I don't thoroughly understand how God manifests everything that happens in it, The um, my obligation is to sit down and do it. Somebody asked me uh, the other night, I was at a book club, and the question was, do you ever have writer's block? And my answer was, there's not uh, room in my um, life and this work that I've been given to um, have something called writer's block. Hmm. This is my job. And I have to go and sit down and do it. I'm not, you know, I don't, I'm not waiting for a muse <laughs> yeah. to arrive. Um, I just finished a 15, for example, 1500 word reflection for on humility, humility for our daily bread ministries. Okay. That will probably run. They they usually work about a year ahead, so it'll probably run somewhere in, in about a year. And um, and so when I get to a place where I'm not sure what to say next, I will physically move from the keyboard, um, go downstairs, wash dishes, take a walk or something until that next idea that's waiting for me to discover it can come sailing in. Okay. So, um, but the idea of being blocked is, there's no place in my day-to-day work to indulge that to indulge yeah i i really like the way you put that because i guess it is a sort of self-indulgence or can be probably in in that way to throw oneself back on writer's block you you simply do it you have to do the work you do the work and and you evidently know the kinds of things you need to do so that the work can come the work can flow the next idea comes the um the creative um, impulse can look like uh, some kind of magic, but it's rest more on some kind of discipline. Okay. And That's so, what a lot of us need to hear. <laughs> so if I'm stuck, then I need to do some more research, uh, talk to um, some person who has some information, um, look at a piece of writing that's like the kind that I'm trying to do, something that moves me forward into the next um, place that I need to be to do the work. Well, I think those are the marks of a true craftsperson, a true artisan, 
that you've you've learned the disciplines of excellence. You've learned the disciplines to carry you through the tough spots, to find your way through the tough spots, rather than waiting on the muse or the magic. <laughs> right. right, right. Yeah. I enjoy basketball. I'll just say this. We've been watching. Well, my husband and I love basketball. And um, Steph Curry the other night um, had a great night. I'm not sure when this tape will run, but... At this particular night, I think he scored 43 points. Okay, in the NBA Finals. This yes. Year. Yeah. And so I enjoyed that because um, he has said in his, um, he teaches a master class and some other things, and he's often asked, how can you keep making those shots? And um, his answer is, I go, I go to the gym, you know? Yeah. And if, if, those are the, if that's the kind of shot, if those are the kind of shots you want to make, Get to the gym. Yeah. It, yeah, it's reminiscent of um, Malcolm Gladwell's principle mm-hmm. of 10,000 hours. Yes. Right? Precisely. Yeah. Get to get cracking. Get, <laughs> you just get to work on it and develop the disciplines and, and the finesse. Let's talk about your most recent book, your mystery novel, All That Is Secret. Uh, I was captivated even by the prologue to this, partly because it's uh, set as a Western. I, I don't know the whole story and what you'd call a Western, but it's it starts set in out the West. yeah, set in the West uh, in Colorado, in yes. fact. And and I love westerns. Um, I'm a big fan of Elmer Kelton's mm-hmm. work, <laughs> and I, I I love those. But you've um, you've taken this in a in a an interesting and maybe unique direction because th- this mystery novel seems to be uh, creating a space where those intersections of, of race and justice and culture and, and mystery and intrigue and all of that kind of come together. Uh, tell us about that. Well, um, the novel features a young black theologian who is um, called home to Colorado. She's working as a Bible College in Chicago and gets a cryptic telegram to come back to Colorado and help solve the mystery of the murder of her estranged father. Joe Spain. Joe Spain. Right. Okay. Her name is Annalise Spain, Professor Annalise Spain. And this happens in um, 1924 during the time in Colorado when the Ku Klux Klan ruled the roost politically and socially. I think a lot of people in Colorado don't associate that kind of thing with Colorado, but that's part of the Colorado narrative. It really is. Part of our our history. Yeah. So um, I, it's not a slave narrative because of the time that it's set. There Mm -hmm. are, there are a lot of good slave narratives, but um, I wanted instead to look at the life I wanted to put a face on a young woman of color who was trying to figure out her life and her faith and her place in a space of prejudice and bigotry Mm. during that time. But while she's trying to solve a mystery. So um, it was important to me to not just write about um, the struggle of a young woman uh, during the time of the Klan years, but to make it an, um, an entertainment by making it a mystery. Mm. 
And that made it uh, exciting for me to write, and I'm, I hope exciting for people to read. Well, if, um, if what I've read so far is in the indicator, it, it will be. So I would highly recommend this, uh, this work. And I think it just uh, hit the shelf in October, you said? Yes. This I, past year of 21. The, right. Okay. As fall. I, um, knew that this was, um, something new for me, but, um, I believed, I guess that's the best way to say it, Don, I believed that, um, there was, there could be a way for people who aren't young and black and female to identify with the protagonist, and I love to watch that happen. In fact, you know, I spent a lot of time, as you mentioned, writing about race and faith and um, have had a lot of pushback on things that I've written. Hmm. So it's been um, exciting for me to see people be who may push back on, on some of my uh, nonfiction work to be willing to read a whole novel about this young black woman uh, trying to solve a, a mystery because all of us want to know... How, who did it? How does it turn yeah, out? Yeah, <laughs> you know that's the that's the the um, the universal the sentiment right, in some right. ways. Who who done it? Who done it? Yeah, and uh, so that keeps um, people reading. You caught my attention with the uh, comment you just made about this not being the significance of this not being restricted to um, uh, young woman of color. Uh, in those kinds of circumstances, what other what what other kinds of implications do you think this might have? What how would this extend into other life circumstance? Do you think? Well, um, based on what I'm hearing at book club meetings, um, I've um, been blessed to attend uh, and meet with uh, many book clubs who uh, are enjoying this book. And what I'm observing is how it's. It is inviting people to identify with this character, but then to then take the risk risk, and examine their own history with race and faith and look at how they might have been shaped by those things. So um, in a book club of um, the other night with uh, 10 or 12 women who all were white, the conversation wasn't just about the, the novel, but about the places where they grew up and how um, the narratives around race that they heard um, defined how they thought about themselves, about people of color, and what America is. Well, that's the that was the um, that was I. I shouldn't call it the work, but that was the position of the Ku Klux Klan. You know, the, they they positioned themselves as a law and order organization during a time when people were of trying to figure out who is an American and um, are our values being threatened. And so the Klan leaned into that and said, we are American. If you're white and you're Protestant, um, some people call it, if you're a legacy American, then mm. um, then you are. If you're not, then you don't belong. And so people in the book club were talking about how they um, wrestled with that 
message in, in their own lives. Mm. So, you know, you know, a fictional story can uh, invites us to uh, examine those those kind of places in in a, in a safe way because it's a novel, you know. It does. It does have a way of personalizing the, the that, that genre has a way of of, of humanizing and personalizing um, issues that can so easily be held at a distance by abstraction and principle. They, you know, they're, when they're discussed as as ideas, yes, it's easy to treat them in a very different way and to keep them to yeah. at a at a supposedly safe distance right. from ourselves. And and that's what I love about the kind of work you're doing is that it gives us a a way of personalizing and even internalizing that narrative and thinking about it in a very different way. I'm surprised to hear how much people come to care about a a fictional character. They um, they ask me what's what's going to happen next. Is um, you know she there's a love interest in this story, uh, Don, and so people will say it's is it's she and are she and Jack going to get together? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's funny. I hear the same thing about uh, uh, television dramas. Yes, you know, where the authors of the drama uh, will get will get um, they'll meet somebody on the street who is angry at them for how they've treated a certain <laughs> right. character, right? Right. <laughs> so um, I told somebody if I knew it was going to be so much fun, I would have tried this a lot <laughs> a long time ago. Oh, I'm so glad you're doing it. Um, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I, I imagine you meet a lot of people who, when they find out you're a writer, their first impulse is to tell you about their own writing aspirations. Yes. Um, what do you tell them? I invite them to find a writing conference where people who write and people who publish will convene. La- just last week, for example, at the um, St. Andrew United uh, Methodist Church in Highlands Ranch, a um, conference hosted by a a writing group called Writing for Your Life it, uh, held a um, a writing conference and people were there from all over the country some people from Canada mm-hmm. and at those places not only are there workshops and um, you know uh, lectures and that sort of thing about writing and publishing but p- also publishers and um often representatives from publishing houses. And so I say all that to say I invite people to go to the places where people who are doing the work are already getting together. Okay. So you meet them, you get your questions answered, you have an opportunity to present your writing to somebody who could actually do something about it. And so instead of um, staying at home in what could be, can be a solo existence, um, you get with the community, the writing community. It's the best way to um, find out if you are do indeed have some um, some potential and opportunities. What, what do you think are some of the the biggest illusions or misconceptions that people have about being a writer? That it is easy because good writing often looks easy. That it's easy, and um, and that they'll um, write, write, you know, off the bat have great success. Um, my friend Jerry Jenkins, who lives here in Colorado and 
has written many, many books, um, will mention that his big bestseller, the Left Behind series, mm-hmm. was uh, I think his one hundred and you know twentieth or something book, and so there's um, often um, not really an under- understanding that there's rarely, if ever, overnight success. And that it is, uh, it's a journey and a long one. You throw a lot of stuff into the well, don't you, before, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> before something, at least often, before something comes of it. Yes. Yeah. So you, that's one thing for sure. I, I suppose you've had your own discouragements, setbacks along the way in your career as a writer and mm-hmm. as a teacher of writing? Many. Um, I started out, um, I confess this, I started out wanting to be as, as successful as many of the authors um, I know are. I personally know, just here in Colorado, many authors who are a million seller authors, Philip Yancey, um, uh, Jerry Jenkins, and just a long list of people here, right here in this state. Yeah. But um, my working scripture is um, um, Galatians 6, 4, the, the New Living Translation says, Pay careful attention to your own work, and then you'll have the satisfaction of a job well done, mm. and you won't have to compare yourself to anybody else. And so that um, particular uh, uh, scripture is plastered above my desktop at, at home, because on any given day, I could look at what some other author has done or accomplished um, or achieved, instead of focusing on the uh, assignment that I have, on the mm. work that I've been given to do. What a great word. What a great word. How, how has how has r- your writing shaped you over the years, do you think? It has um, demanded that I tell the truth. Writing, I say this in writing workshops, writing is about two things. It's um, about truth and it's about courage. And if you know your truth and you have the courage to put it on paper, when people see it, they'll say, oh, that was so good. And I think what they mean is, oh my goodness, somebody is saying, telling the truth about this uh, hard thing. Uh, um, so it's uh, de- de- writing has demanded of me that truth telling. But the other thing, and I was thinking about this driving over here today, writing demands courage. And this, uh, my foray into fiction, I discovered that if I found a brave way to say something or let something happen in my story, the story became better. And, um, you know, at first I was kind of tiptoeing around thinking, can I let this happen? Can I let this person say that? What if Tyndale House says, no, you can't? And so what I was hearing from them and hearing in my soul was, do the scary, hard, but brave thing. And that's where the rich writing happens. So, you know, if we, the place that scares us the most is where we should be writing. Hmm. That we need to capture that, bold that, italicize that, underline that. That's 
That's the goal. The yes. place that scares us the most is the place where we should be riding. Yes. Wow, thanks for that. Because if it scares us, it's scaring other people. Mm -hmm. And if we will um, do the work of reflecting on it and writing about that, then we um, not just help ourselves, because it shouldn't be, writing shouldn't just be catharsis for the author or the writer, but it then should help the, um, the people who are waiting for that information. Yeah, and in that sense, it is service. It is ministry. It is ministry. Yeah. Only recently have I started calling what I do my writing ministry. Hmm. I, you know, for a while, I, for many years, I thought this is my work, but I understand it now. It is a ministry. Yeah. Well, it's even if even if you've only recently started to call it that, <laughs> it has been that for a long, long time, and uh, and for me too, for uh, for some years since I first read. Thank something you. you wrote. Thank you for that. We've been interacting with Patricia Raybon. Patricia, thanks. Thanks for spending time with us and for sharing so much with us, including your experiences uh, today. It's Thank been a you. great gift. Let me commend to you again uh, all of Patricia's books, um, particularly her most recent, the mystery novel called All That Is Secret by Tyndale House. Uh, get that. I think you'll deeply enjoy it. Thank you. Um, and we look forward to the next installment, okay. I, I hear. <laughs> yes, book two. There's another one in the cooker. <laughs> yes. Look for that in February of 2023. Great. The title is Double the Lies. Double the Lies. Okay, can't wait. <laughs> can't wait. Uh, this has been good. Friends, this is Engage 360. We're glad that you take some time uh, regularly to uh, interact with our guests through these conversations. Uh, we hope they're beneficial to you. Remember that you can uh, find all of our podcast conversations on our website at denverseminary.edu as well as uh, full transcripts of each one on our website. So please access those as you would find that beneficial. Uh, let me encourage you again, remind you again to visit our website for other resources. And if you you or people you know are looking for uh, theological education in, in various ways. We've got a lot of resources to offer. We'd love to interact with you about how you could take advantage of those. Friends, we'll talk to you again soon. Take care. <laughs>